Last week, we talked about how God is trustworthy and that he has good things for us. So this week, we're going to see that we don't earn anything from God, but he gives us grace or good things first, and then obedience comes as a result. Now, at Better Man, what we've been doing on Monday mornings with our guys is we've been talking about something similar, which is not living for the approval of others, but living from the approval we have in God and from our community. Now, this might not seem apparent in the Old Testament, but this idea is peppered throughout it. This idea that, that God isn't making this covenant saying, okay, if you do X, Y, Z, then I'll give you blessing, I'll give you good things, whatever. We do see that to an extent with this continuance of that, but we see that first God gives grace and then the covenant comes after. It's this expectation, okay, this is what a response to my grace looks like. So we're going to see this throughout the text tonight, and I hope that we'll have that lens as we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9 through 10. This is David saying to his son Solomon, And you, my son, Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father, and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house as the sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. Right, so this is David speaking and Solomon saying, God has chosen you. Now do it. It's just his charge to him. He doesn't say, God chose you, Solomon, because of something you had already done. But Solomon is given unmerited favor from God. It's very simple. It's actually what grace is. Grace is unmerited uh, meaning, you know, you didn't earn it. It's favor that you did not earn. It's blessing. It's love that, that you can't say, I did this to deserve it. It's just given to us regardless. And throughout the Old Testament, God gives grace to his people and develops a covenant relationship of what life in response to grace looks like. So a good example of this, I'll give a few, is that Abraham is chosen to bless the world through his descendants. And Paul makes a key argument in Romans 4 and through much of Galatians that Abraham trusted and believed God, even though Abraham didn't deserve this blessing, and he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Jacob, one of his uh, descendants, was chosen to continue the line instead of his brother Esau. And Paul tells us in Romans 9 that this, was, that this happened not because of anything that either of the twins had done, but it was because of God's sovereignty. And then later on, God rescues the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Not once had they proven themselves. Uh, he didn't do this because they proved themselves, um, but it was before they had proven themselves that God does this. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments and starts it with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Not the Lord your God who will bring you out of Egypt if, but who already has. And this then is how you should live in response. David had nothing about him that qualified him for kingship, but he was anointed by God's grace, by his unmerited favor, by God's own sovereignty. And now we come to Solomon, who is chosen, right? This is, this is you know, largely before he had asked for wisdom. He is already chosen uh, instead of David to be the one with building the temple. And then God gives him wisdom, as we saw last week. And what we see here is that God does not call the equipped but equips the called. Have you ever felt like you didn't have what it takes to achieve your goals in life? Or that you weren't strong enough? You weren't athletic enough? You weren't smart enough? You weren't talented enough or pretty enough, whatever it might be, to be of use to God? Have you ever felt that way? Or maybe you've worked hard at something 
And maybe you have achieved, maybe you feel like you do deserve it and you feel like you're not getting the reward or the recognition that you deserve. David wanted so badly to build a temple. He, he, he may have felt like he had earned it, like he had proven himself after years and years of being uh, relatively faithful to God and his covenant, but he is not the one who's chosen. He seems as equipped as anyone to do it, but Solomon, his son, is chosen instead. And not only is Solomon chosen, but then God gives him everything he needs to do it. So Abraham was supposed to have descendants as numerous as the stars, yet he didn't have any children. And he had to trust that God would provide and that God would equip him, even though he was not currently equipped for it. Jacob was known as a mama's boy. He was considered a weakling compared to his athletic hunter of a brother. Moses was worried about his speech impediment, but God provided him with Aaron to help him speak. David was maybe 13 when he faced the giant Goliath, and yet God equipped him not with sword or spear, but with God's own power to defeat Goliath. And so Solomon builds the temple in the first chapters of 2 Chronicles, and we're not going to go through every detail of the text, but maybe some of us are, are wondering, why was it so important to record all these details about the temple's design, how big this part of it was, or how, what these rooms looked like, and the, the furnishings, and the paintings, I mean, all the things. Here is the significance of all that, if you want to go through it and read on your own time, is the temple was designed as a microcosm of heaven and earth. A microcosm is really just a small or micro world, also known as cosmos, right? It's a microcosm. It's also reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. There's images all throughout the temple of trees, of fruit, of angels and animals, of God's creation everywhere. And, and it's God's creation the way it is supposed to be or that it was in the garden. And then the apex of all of that is the Ark of the Covenant, which was symbolic of God's throne. Right, so it's elevated into the Holy of Holies, into this special, almost the throne room of God. And it's meant to represent that God is ultimately on the throne and he is ruling over all of creation with goodness and justice. And while Solomon ruled from his palace, the temple was the earthly house uh, that, of God that pointed us toward the ultimate reality, once again, of God on the throne of the cosmos. So look what Solomon has to say in his dedication prayer. And it's a wonderful, it's a very long prayer, and there's so much good stuff in there. But we're just going to focus on a few things. He asks in verse 18 of 2 Chronicles 6, Will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. The temple was designed to draw our attention to the spiritual reality going on all around us that we have largely become blind to. And this is also a foreshadowing that Jesus would dwell among us and would dwell in us through the Holy Spirit. By the way, there is power that is evident from God dwelling in us. Look what it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not even enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. Here's what I'm curious about. This is for us personally. This is going to the deep end of the pool. Are you aware? Are you truly cognizant of the power and awe that comes upon us when we worship? Or is it just the same old songs we sing, these, these almost love songs to Jesus? Or, or are we in tune with the power um, and, and, and the amazing move of God that comes when we worship? See, we are when we worship, it's not just someone 
you know, starting a pad on the keyboard or, or, you know, strumming on guitar, we are entering into the throne room of God. And when that happens, people are undone. If you want some extra credit, you can look in the book of Isaiah, I believe it's chapter six, where Isaiah uh, comes in, into the temple, not just the earthly temple, but he has a vision of the heavenly temple that the earthly temple is just a representation of he comes into the heavenly temple and he sees the glory of the lord similar to what these priests are experiencing where they couldn't even function isaiah is is saying i'm about to be undone i i'm like this this piece of clothing like this garment woven together that is being unwoven in the presence just in the awesomeness of the presence of god i remember when i was in college it felt like i would just get so beat up at the end of the week and i, and I would go to chapel on Thursday nights. And I remember, um, you know, they'd say at this point, chapel is dismissed, you know, we had to go for credit. And uh, they'd say, but if you want, you can stay and worship a little bit longer with us. And I remember I'd go to, um, I remember one time we just kept going. Um, you know, they, they usually would have another song or two and uh, they kind of just looked around and looked at each other and said, hey, uh, uh, you know, you guys want to keep, worshiping it feels like the spirit of the lord is very thick in the room and that there god's doing a lot you know we don't want to end this time if we can keep going do you guys want to keep worshiping and here was the interesting thing we weren't worried about school we weren't worried about work or, or whatever else we might have had that was outside that temple we were so aware of our brokenness that we couldn't help but pour it all out before jesus and so my question for us is are we undone in worship and prayer? Are we like water? At least I, I ask this saying, do we realize, th this is already the reality, but do we realize that we are like water poured out on the ground and that only God can collect us back up again? Because part of grace is not only does God show us love when we don't deserve it, but God forgives us when we deserve his wrath. Uh, once again, there's a lot we could read from Solomon's dedication prayer, um, but I just want to draw our attention to 2 Chronicles 6, starting in verse 36. It says, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, that's Solomon's words, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and pray toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen, toward the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you. Here is the key to this passage and many others. All of this is said in the context of covenant. See, all of us at some level have probably internalized the lie that we have to earn God's love first in any kind of covenantal relationship with him. What we forget is that grace comes first. And then this passage is assuming that the people of Israel have broken their end of the covenant. And it's not so much God punishing them with exile that would come later and we'll eventually get to maybe in a later series through Kings. It's not so much God punishing them, but handing them over to the consequences of their sin. This is an age-old cycle we saw even in the book of Exodus and Judges. And the only way to cover up our sin was with animal sacrifice by then. And there are tons, and I mean 
tons of passages written on the priests and the sacrifices that they made at the temple, all on account of sin. Hebrews 9 talks about how every year the high priest would go into the temple, into the throne room of God where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would make the sacrifice there for all the people. However, Jesus ultimately paid the penalty for all our sins with his death and resurrection, ushering in a new covenant by his grace. Look at what the book of Hebrews says about all this. It says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Notice that word, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Here's where it gets personal. You and I have been rescued, ransomed, and set free by Jesus. So how is our life a reflection of that? If people were to see how you and I live, would they know it's a response to the grace of Jesus? Or do we live no different than if Jesus never existed? You, know, might think, uh, you and I might think, I'm too messed up. You know, I'm not holy like those super Christians out there. And, and I guess that's not the worst place to start. But remember how we said that God does not call the equipped, but equips the called? What we just read in Hebrew says that we are called. Therefore, God is going to equip you with the ability to follow his covenant, to respond with holiness, with obedience, um, if we are willing to be equipped. And our application is simply this. This isn't like a super, uh, I shouldn't even say it. I was going to say it's not a super profound message, but I guess in a way it is. Um, it's not super complex, not even that complicated. It's just often difficult for us. Our application is simple and yet difficult. It's that we joyfully accept the love, the unmerited favor and grace that God has for us. So I ask you, do you know just how much God loves you? Are, are you uh, trying to earn his approval? Or do you realize that you already have his love? That his grace is already uh, his approval for you? And are you living for that? Or are we living from it? We've been talking about that a lot in Better Man. Do you realize how real it is that he knew every sin you and I would commit, and yet he went to the cross for us still? The next step is to accept the consequences of our sin, right? To understand how loved we are by God, and yet when we sin, Solomon's saying, look, no, no one is without sin. And so when we sin, that, that hopefully we, we receive the gift of grace once again when we ask for forgiveness. You know, it reminds me of one of my favorite movies uh, from Les Mis, where Wolverine, I mean, Jean Valjean, uh, was sentenced to decades of hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread. Maybe you've seen the, the movie, um, there's actually the book by Victor Hugo, which goes into more detail of this. Uh, Valjean serves his time, right? And he actually uh, gets in more trouble during that, and he has to serve even more time. And he has this difficult time readjusting back into society, because no matter what he does, even though he served his time, he is branded as a thief, as a dangerous man. People today, by the way, still have this issue coming out of prison. And what ends up happening after a long series of events is he ends up at the door of a man named Bishop Muriel, uh, the door of a priest. Um, and Muriel has been born into nobility. Um, and so he's, he grows up a very rich man, lives a very um, wealthy and privileged life. Um, but then it is not until later that he comes into the priesthood, later in his life. Now, generally, priests would take a vow of poverty. So this means like, you know, this is a guy who in, in, a, in a society where he was in the upper echelon, 
since the time he was born, where he could have lived a very comfortable, privileged life, he takes a vow of poverty, meaning he would have had to renounce all the titles of nobility he had. He would have had to give up the land and the people who worked it for him. Um, he likely had lots of houses that he owned he had to give up. There was money uh, and wealth that he had to give away to the church. And so he's taken a vow of poverty, most likely, and he's painted in the light of Jesus, who took a similar vow of, I guess you could call it poverty, where Jesus went from the riches and the bliss of heaven to being born as an oppressed refugee, right? His family had to run away to Egypt. They were oppressed, um, they were refugees, and he was a peasant in ancient Rome. Also, if anyone asks how often you think about the Roman Empire, by the way, I know it's a trend, you can say, well, I guess I thought about it at least once this week at church. But like Jesus, Muriel has given up everything, except in this case, he, he still has something left uh, of his old life of nobility. Um, he has a, a silver dining set. Uh, his meals are, are likely Spartan, right? Meaning he doesn't have a lot of food, a lot of, um, a lot of meat or fancy food uh, that he would eat. I remember um, uh, years ago, I'd gone on a silent retreat and they said, you know, expect that the food here, you're not going to have a lot, of, a lot of meat. It's a lot of beans, a lot of uh, lentils, a lot of rice, a lot of very cheap food um, that, that doesn't exactly leave you wanting more. Uh, and yet he has only to enjoy it a very nice dining set made of silver, very costly, very expensive. Um, so Jean Valjean comes to his door asking for a place to spend the night, and Bishop Muriel takes him in, feeds him on this uh, these silver plates and utensils. And here's the thing, after receiving that grace, after receiving that, there, there's no uh, nothing Jean Valjean had done to earn this. In fact, if anything, he didn't deserve it um, for being a criminal. Well, at least that's what most people thought. And so he's given this unmerited favor, and how does he repay the bishop? He steals his silver plates and utensils in the night, and he runs away with it. And shortly after, he's caught by the police. And the police think there is no way that this man should have these, um, these silver, the silver dining set. And so they ask him where he got it. Uh, and he lies to them. And he says, well, this was actually a gift that, that this bishop gave to me. And the police don't believe him, naturally. So they march him over there. Right? They're saying, we're going to catch you in this lie. And we're going to ask him if he really gave it to you as a gift. And when confronted, they knock on the door. And, and I can just imagine Jean Valjean is there. And he's, he knows that he's about to be caught in this, that he's about to go on the chain gang, probably um, about to be in prison again for the rest of his life. And when confronted about this, the police officers ask the bishop, did you really give this to him as a gift? Uh, the bishop lies and he confirms Jean Valjean's story, even though it wasn't really true. And not only that, he not only says, yes, I gave this this silver to him as a gift, even though it was stolen, he lies and says he gave it to him as a gift. But not only that, the bishop goes back into his house and he says he forgot the most important part of the gift. He forgot the two silver candlesticks. He gives him a silver candlesticks. And Jean Valjean is shocked at the grace, the unmerited favor he's just received from the bishop. Here's the important part. His response afterwards is he says, now um, what was once stolen, now gifted silver, he says, I want to use this, and the money from it, to become an honest man. All of Solomon and Moses' blessing and curses, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in the book of Deuteronomy that's echoed there. It can all be summed up in that story from Victor Hugo. We are all like Jean Valjean, poor, 
and wretched and we continually betray God with every second chance we're given. We take what we can from the world and when we are caught, God gives us not what we deserve, but gives us more grace, the two silver candlesticks that we had forgotten. And now our choice is this. Are we going to use the grace and the forgiveness God is gifting us this time again to become his disciples, to follow him uh, uh, even more passionately, even more enthusiastically, and even more committed? Or are we going to forget? Are we going to fall back into the same old sin and its consequences?